0: I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week.
1: Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful.
0: So now we invite you to join us as we together listen
1: listen for for the the word.
0: word. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. This is our podcast for Trinity Sunday and the, the selection today is John 16, verses 12 through 15. This is just a few verses. But it is back to that uh, farewell discourse, again, that we've been working with. So I'm going to let Alan kind of put this into some context of maybe why it's on Trinity Sunday.
1: Yeah, thanks, Christy. Um, so as Christy mentioned, on this Trinity Sunday, the gospel reading returns to Jesus teaching about the Spirit in the farewell discourse. And we've now spent two Easter seasons in the farewell discourse of John's gospel. And unfortunately, again, I would have to say I don't believe that the Revised Common Lectionary does justice to the passage by just snipping out these for a few verses so i'm going to try to talk about them both in the light of the broader context of the farewell mm-hmm, discourse mm-hmm. as well as in light of the fact that this is the reading for trinity sunday mm-hmm. we've already dealt with this passage in a previous session right. but we dealt with it more in a different kind of setting so i'm going to i'm going to deal with it from the light from the standpoint of the fact that it's the reading from for trinity sunday. right
0: well and i think obviously it's picked out because it has at least in the opinion of the, <laughs> the selection those who selected it uh relationships the Trinity, mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. um, and and this this Sunday that we do recognize before Pentecost, so I guess the thing that struck out uh, to me was the whole um, Spirit of Truth. Right. I mean, this is where we really see Holy Spirit, and so. Right. Tell, tell us about the Spirit of Truth here. Right.
1: And so, you know, we've seen this before. We've, we've talked about Jesus' uh, view of the Holy Spirit in the Farewell Discourse. And, and here the primary work of the Spirit of Truth is to testify on my behalf, as Jesus says. And the idea later in this text seems to be that the primary work of the Spirit is to guide the disciples into all truth after Jesus departs and returns to the Father. And that would include, apparently, not only the truth of what Jesus taught while he was with them in his earthly ministry, but also what Jesus would continue to teach them through the Spirit. And so it, it's because of this work of the Spirit, then, that disciples will be enabled to carry out their calling to follow him in obedience to the Father, and thus to bear the fruit of faithfully carrying out the work that he began, mm-hmm. the work of bringing the world into the embrace of the love that is shared by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, I, you know, just, just that kind of setting, that kind of context of, right. of Jesus' ministry, um, I think, makes this passage somewhat appropriate for I think it Trinity is Sunday. i, I yeah. see that i see yeah. that
0: um and then it, it moves on here with jesus saying um i did not say these things to you from the beginning so this is a really interesting piece of jesus like like ministry is going to continue or push mm-hmm. forward or it doesn't end with him. Maybe. Right.
1: Right. And, and you know, we're, I'm backing up a bit with that, with that verse. That's the beginning of the chapter just to set it in the context of the chapter. Okay. And, and so that's where Jesus begins the chapter in a sense. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And it sounds like Jesus is making a full disclosure to his disciples about himself, about the coming of the spirit mm-hmm. and about their work after he's gone. But at the beginning of our lesson for today, in verse 12 he says I still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now right. and so this kind of I wanted to point out that this kind of back and forth is one characteristic of the farewell discourse right. that we haven't really yet discussed um, there are a number of times when Jesus says one thing then seems to say the opposite and as we saw in chapter 14, Jesus speaks with assurance about their faith in him and in the father and about their ability to do greater works than he did. And then he turns around and says, if you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the father because the father is greater than I. And now I've told you this before it occurs so that when it does occur, you may believe. So, you know, again, it, it, there's kind of a there's kind of a flip-flopping. There's kind of a back and forth. And that's kind of characteristic of the farewell mm-hmm. discourse mm-hmm. on a number of themes. You
0: know, I it seems to be, it it could be con- con-
1: confusing mm-hmm. I,
0: I, I why this technique why do you think John's doing this? Well,
1: you know, again, as I've mentioned before, I, I believe that the farewell discourse was likely put together either by the fourth evangelist or by the final authors or editors, mm-hmm. the "we" of John twenty-one twenty-four, and so you know, I think these are evidences of their editorial work. We mm-hmm. see some seams here in in where they're trying to put together some different sayings, and and you know, both both statements I think have relevance. I think so, but mm-hmm. but. But it's just the, the 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 way they weave them together is a little bit rough, right? Yeah. Right.
0: Well, yeah. I think it, I I think it helps us being too deterministic about the the scripture that the mm-hmm. scripture is a more living document. I, yes, indeed. That's what it feels to me yes, like indeed. that there's life actually written in to it. Surely. Um as the movement with the Holy Spirit is is Surely. is being revealed here yeah. in this way. So that's how I kind of see it. But yeah, but, I would but agree there's with that. another part of me that wants to be very uh,
1: I know. We want it we want it, it to be sort of falling from heaven in its present form, you know, mm-hmm. and we don't want to see any human agency in it. And here I think we do see some evidence of the human agency in Scripture. That's fair enough. Yeah.
0: And so what what comes next?
1: So in this setting I think then the fact that Jesus statement I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It's followed up. By the declaration, when the Spirit of mm-hmm. Truth comes, He will guide you he into will. all truth. That makes sense. So those those two go together, mm-hmm, really. Mm-hmm. And I think you know the the, the follow up in verse thirteen that that the Spirit of Truth will guide you into all truth. I think it suggests that there are truths that they will need to know to carry out their ministry that He has not been able to teach right. them because they haven't been able to bear it yet. Right. But that the Spirit would be there to show them right. those truths when the time came.
0: Well. I, I think that I actually think that makes a lot of sense too. But they can't envision a world without Jesus and without the crucifixion until it happens. I mean, right. You can't, and, you
1: can't and and put they, yourself in this. They can't really even understand how that's going to shape them and their faith until after it happens. It, exactly. Right? So
0: this make this makes sense. This makes sense. That's yeah. that's their limits of their human human.
1: And as we've seen before, even evangelical, even conservative evangelical New Testament scholars will say that that the that the pros, the perspective of the of the farewell discourse is from the post Pentecostal yeah. church, yeah. right? So this is after the right. fact That's of the crucifixion, true. the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, mm-hmm. and the coming of the Spirit, right? Right. right. And so, uh, as we'll discuss below, and as I've mentioned before, this opens the door to the idea that part of the work of the Spirit is to reveal to the the disciples not only what Jesus taught them in his earthly ministry, but also what he would Mm -hmm. continue Mm -hmm. to teach them through the Spirit.
0: Now, as we move on, there's a whole bunch of discussion about Jesus and the sorrow that they'll have. So he's already Mm -hmm. kind of predicting that, which Mm -hmm. is obvious. That's human that's our human nature. But I think the way he addresses this is interesting. So why don't you tell us Yeah. That?
1: So as we've said before, in the farewell discourse, the coming of the Spirit relates to Jesus' imminent departure. And he acknowledges the sorrow that they would have over his departure. And it's a theme in the later part mm-hmm. of this chapter. Um, in, in verses 20 and 22 and 24, Jesus not only tells them that they should rejoice, he says that their sorrow will be turned to joy. And here Jesus insists that it's to their advantage that he goes away, because if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you mm-hmm. in verse seven. Mm-hmm. So it's we're still sort of dealing with the broader context of John 16, 12 through 15 in, the, in chapter 16. But at this point, I could imagine that they might very well still be confused by this. But I think Jesus after Jesus explains that the way the Spirit would enable them to carry out their ministry, it may have become a bit clearer to them. And we see at the end of the chapter in verse 29, they say, now you are speaking plainly. But on the other hand, Jesus continues to push them a bit regarding Mm -hmm. their faith. So, Mm -hmm. again, we have some of that back and forth that I think is characteristic of the the farewell discourse.
0: Now, um, moving on here, this um, part of the... I think the complexity here, and this is what we're going to talk with the Reformers about, is, is what this relationship between God and Jesus is. And I think this is our really our
1: next mm-hmm. our next
0: question mark.
1: Well, and the relationship between God, Jesus, and the Spirit. And the you Spirit, know. of yeah, course, right, because yeah. it's the Spirit. I've, I've noted this before in a previous podcast. The fact that Jesus speaks of the Spirit as the one whom I will send to you from the Father, mm-hmm. in verse 7, is likely one of the biblical references that provoked the theological controversy that divided mm-hmm. the ancient church between east and west right, right. over the infamous Filioque cause in the Nicene Creed, right. who proceeds from the father and the son. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that, that was the, that was what the East the, the church in the West believed, the Roman Church right. and the church in, in the east in, in Constantinople left out. The, right. and, the and the son they right. believe that the spirit only proceeded from the father right. and and but again you know it's kind of interesting because the language of the farewell discourse is again kind of all over the place on this mm-hmm. in 1416 jesus says he will ask the father and that the father would send the paraclete mm-hmm. or the spirit in 1426 the paraclete or the spirit is the one whom the father will send in my, my name, name. Mm-hmm. but here in verse 7 in chapter 16 7 jesus says that he will send the paraclete or the spirit to them and in, in our lesson for today Jesus simply speaks of when the, the spirit, spirit comes, comes in verse 13 mm-hmm. but i think it's important to remember that the way Jesus speaks of the coming of the spirit in the context of the whole discourse is a little bit again all over the page
0: right it's all over and i I think, I think here, and this is, of course, I think how the Church Fathers read it, the, mm-hmm. the, the the Reformers, at least the more educated ones, are saying, look, we have to understand the breadth of how Trinity is understood in the Bible as a whole and right. and also how John right. is, is using this right. in different ways. Because sometimes Jesus, according to them, and I think we agree, comes to us in his human voice almost more Mm-hmm. And then sometimes Jesus comes really um, in, in his divine joy speaking. Speaking well,
1: and I don't know that I would make it that distinction. I just think you know there there is some there is com- uh, some there there is complexity, right? Yeah, that's when it fair, comes to yeah. the relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Right. And and does the Spirit come from the Father? Does the Spirit come from the Father and the Son? Right. I mean, you know, to some extent, I think. Um, Jesus could say, well, the father will send the spirit in my name. And that's the same thing as saying, I will send you the spirit, you know? Right. And I think, I think we're meant to see these various ways of stating how the spirit will come It's almost, almost synonymous. You know, uh, they corroborate yeah. one well, another. I,
0: I think that's, I think that's important. It gives us that broader, that broader yeah. picture of it, right? That, the different ways to understand it as opposed to just one, mm-hmm. one kind of limiting statement. Right. And I think if we think of it that way, it, it's a much, it's a much broader, it's a much, it's a much bigger God. But it gives us, it
1: also gives us a, be, a more, a, a more sturdy basis for theology.
0: Yeah, right? Ab- yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, um, and so then uh, we we move on, and Jesus uses this interesting language here, um, rebuke.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, well, well, and a again, word
0: that's that 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 slaps. I think we've said that before. That slaps in the face. Right. I, I don't like it. No, <laughs>
1: I don't either. And and you know, again we see more variation in the farewell discourse because the task of the spirit also has some variation uh in the context that immediately precedes our lesson jesus says that the spirit would rebuke the world concerning sin and concerning righteousness and concerning judgment and that is so unusual for those of us who are more familiar with the jesus of the synoptic gospels Mm -hmm. but this language is very much at home in john's gospel the sin of the world is is that they do not believe in me. That's what the Spirit will rebuke them about. The judgment refers to the fact that the ruler of this world has been condemned, and we've seen that before in John's Gospel. Mm-hmm. And it would seem then that the rebuke of the Spirit concerning righteousness relates to the truth of Jesus' claim that he had come from the Father and was returning to the Father. And you know, all of that language, though, just seems so strange to us, and yet its it does have a home in, in the theology of, the, of John's Gospel. Mm-hmm. And this, this relates to that whole sense of the us versus them you know that was the situation of the Johannine community and so the spirit is the one who is sort of siding with the Johannine community in their in their conflict with Mm -hmm. um uh, the broader community they were they were dealing with
0: and so moving on then um we also start to talk about this concept of truth what what's going on yeah
1: so this brings us then really to John 16, 12 through 15, proper. And I I, I see this as the heart of the okay. work of the Spirit in John's gospel. Here, the Spirit is called the Spirit of truth here. Mm-hmm. And the work of the Spirit is to guide the disciples into all, all truth. truth. Mm-hmm. Th- and that all truth consists of teaching them everything and reminding them of all that I have said to you, mm-hmm. uh, as we've seen elsewhere so in the is, Farewell Discourse. This
0: is interesting, Ellen, because as I'm thinking about this, Jesus just said... But I can't teach you everything. Right. It's it's what you've learned before, but the Spirit's going to come and lead you now kind of suggesting that truth itself isn't just... Static, but the truth also evolves within the context of what they've learned. Am I I on the right
1: I think so. I mean, there's a sense in which the Spirit is going to remind them of Jesus' words during his Mm -hmm. earthly ministry and perhaps even help them to understand them better through the lens of uh, cross, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, But at the same time, it does seem to suggest that. Um, the Spirit is going to teach them things that Jesus did not in His earthly ministry, because they could not bear them now. Right, right. And and you know we've talked about this before about Christian prophecy in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a significant thing, and um, you know um Christian prophets did not hesitate to speak in Jesus name under yeah, the inspiration right. yeah. of the spirit as they as they saw right, themselves right. and so they, you know they believed their words were not their own but rather this was the risen Christ speaking through them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so you know we do need to take that seriously i think a lot of us in the reformed tradition tend to think you know well that kind of prophecy ended with malachi and so we don't really see it that way but there is a prophetic element mm-hmm. in the new testament you know and so just i mean even just the the interpretive lens through which all four evangelists present their story of Jesus' ministry— that could be seen as an, a prophetic kind of thing, in that the Spirit was 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 leading them into all truth, right? Mm-hmm. And the same thing I think is true for some of the things that that Paul would say, or some of the other New Testament writers would say. You know, we see this as under the inspiration of the Spirit, and there's a prophetic quality of that. Mm-hmm. In that, not that it's predicting something, but again, prophecy is more about proclaiming the message of the word of the Lord. Or, or you know, in an Old Testament context, or in a New Testament context, it's about speaking the word uh, um, speaking uh, the word uh, that Jesus would have them speak uh, you know in in a in a particular situation
0: mm-hmm. that's rich <laughs> yeah that's really yeah. well rich.
1: again those who are biblical literalists don't really like that they're no, not comfortable they with that oh no 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 but, no, um, no. but- I, if we can have a broader sense of 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 you know the, that the work of the spirit is is enab- enables you know particularly the writers of the new testament to to speak in the name of the risen christ well you know that that opens the door to help us understand some things oh
0: well absolutely well the problem with the literalist is it 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 doesn't allow for anything to to change, it doesn't right. offer for re- revelation, it doesn't offer it's for... It's
1: all set in the situation of, of life of Jesus' ministry, right, and it's all right, there, and right. it doesn't really allow the word of Jesus to continue to exactly. to speak effectively into the, the changing context. The only
0: approach is to try to take the world and move it back to a <laughs> yes, time you exactly. can't do. No, I mean, right? you know, so it allows for the, the paradigm of the world that is in itself a Part of God's moving creation, mm-hmm, too. Surely, yeah. It's, it's 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 well, and the
1: community itself is is is, de- is is developing mm-hmm. and growing and, and changing. Yeah, you know,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and so then um, we we're, we're moving on. Jesus talks about then how the the spirit's going to be a teacher. Yeah. So we're yeah. kind of on that right now. But tell us a little more. Well, he
1: can, he goes on to define that the, that the spirit will teach the disciples by saying he will declare to you the things that are to come in verse 13. And this is a challenging statement to understand Mm -hmm. because John's gospel doesn't speak much about the things that are to come. And and this sort of goes with just the whole theological framework, especially the farewell discourses. The whole point is, you know, you have now the fullness of the presence uh, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your life. Uh, And and so there's not a lot of focus on things that are to come. Now, some have taken this as a reference to the Spirit's work in revealing the future of the kingdom of God, as in the book of revelation
0: right yeah you could see that people could do that right?
1: uh, yeah i could see that i don't really think that's the that's okay. the that's the point in the context of john's okay. gospel in this setting, and this this is the reason why in this setting the only other occurrence of this particular phrase ta erkamana the things that are coming, mm-hmm. right? In John's Gospel is found in John eighteen four, where it refers to the fact that Jesus knew all that was to happen to him. Mm-hmm. So it's translated a little bit differently due to the constraints of English. You know, uh, in in verse thirteen, chapter sixteen thirteen, it's He will declare to you the things that are to come. Ta erkamana the coming things. Mm-hmm. In in John eighteen four, uh, again, it's all Jesus knew all. Oh ta or kama,na but it's translated by the English translators as all that was to happen to him.
0: Well, that, what's, okay, that bothers me because things that are to come, that's a, that's more of a, a general statement, whereas the other one is referenced just to Jesus. So which one's right? <laughs> well,
1: I, I mean, you know, a more literal translation of John eighteen four would be that Jesus knew all that was to come. Come. Right. Okay. But I don't think they're wrong in contextualizing it this way because the things that were to come that Jesus knew in that setting. Oh, okay. This is the passion narrative. He knew that he was going right. to be crucified. Okay. And and I think we can say in John's gospel he knew that he was going to be resurrected and he knew that he was going to ascend to the to uh-huh. the right hand of God where he was going to be restored to his previous glory. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So again, You know, the reference in John's gospel of ta or kamana is to his death on the cross and very likely his resurrection ascension as well. And so I think perhaps a common sense view would be that the spirit would help the disciples understand the events that were about to happen to Jesus, which, you know, um, were far beyond the scope of their interpretive framework. Mm-hmm. There was nothing in their in their in their faith framework that would enable them to understand these events, and hmm. and thus you know yep, the cross yep, yep. and the resurrection and the ascension would have challenged them in the extreme. And we see that in the gospels, right?
0: Yeah, of course, of yeah. course, it, 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 duh.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: I don't know how else to say it, although I do find when I'm talking with people, because today when we read Scripture and we kind of look back and we know the story, we know how it goes, that we forget about the, the real impact of mm-hmm. jesus's death i mean we, we, we try to reenact that for folks but but
1: there was nothing in their whole <laughs> framework of faith that that that, that it, prepared them for that
0: exactly yeah. exactly yeah. okay now this next section has another one of these concepts glorify mm-hmm. so tell, yeah. tell us about
1: that so again uh, this work of the spirit in this ongoing work of the spirit in teaching the disciples after jesus departure is further explained in terms of he will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you in verse 14. Mm -hmm. So again, it would seem then that the role of the Spirit is not only to enable them to remember and understand Jesus' teachings during his earthly ministry, Mm -hmm. as well as helping them to make sense out of the worldview shattering events that were about to take place, the cross, resurrection, and ascension. But I would also say that the hints already given about the work of the Spirit in the farewell discourse include the notion that the Spirit would give them further truth that they had not yet received, Mm -hmm. and thus paving the way for the idea that the Spirit would continue to break forth more yep, light and yep. more truth as the Congregationalist Pastor John mm-hmm. Robertson is famously quoted to have said. And so again, I think this very likely relates to the work of the Evangelist and the final author and the, and the authors slash editors of the final version of John's Gospel, the We of John mm-hmm. twenty one twenty four, uh, in their significant reinterpretation of Jesus for their community. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I think, you know, we've talked about this, we've mentioned this on several occasions but I think it's a time where we can really point out that i think the evangelist as well as the authors and or editors of the final version of john's gospel would have seen them as working under the guidance of the spirit um, in in mm-hmm. you know uh, declaring to their community the things that jesus was right. continuing to teach them through the spirit yeah. and so in a very real sense then the work of the spirit in the community of the disciples not only conserves the words of Jesus that he spoke in his ministry, but also enables the word of Jesus to move forward from its moment mm-hmm. in history to the present life of the church, yep. which serves, again, as an assurance, you know, Jesus is departing, but here we have an assurance that the words of Jesus will always be available yep. for the communities of faith at any time and in any place.
0: This is brilliant, and I'm thinking about, and we haven't talked about the writers of John particularly today in terms of their, their audience, but here's their audience. Mm -hmm. And we can see now um, that while this is, this is talking about the disciples and listening to this discourse, this also is informing the
1: church. Absolutely.
0: Um, And I think, I think these are good words for them to hear as well.
1: Well, and, and that process continues today, right? Of course. It's good yeah. for
0: us to hear, too. Yes, and indeed. Again, we're talking about that static view of Scripture versus mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, that prophetic use of Scripture and that that ongoing um, interaction of the world as it moves along its timeline and how, how our faith interacts yeah. with it.
1: Yeah, it's very different from what, what I, I recall... Um, as i as i taught biblical interpretation you know in the medieval church the the standard for biblical interpretation was what has been always believed everywhere and by everyone you know exactly. in other words no nothing new right there's no right. change right. and yet this this opens the door for an ongoing work of the spirit in in mm-hmm. enabling christian prophets to speak mm-hmm. the the words of jesus to a new era and hopefully right all of us who are trying to to proclaim the gospel in the pulpits, right. uh, we hope that when we pray that the Spirit uh, speaks through us, the right, words of right, Jesus to right. our community.
0: Well, you know, but it, it, it does afford us to say, this situation's happening in the world, and then we can look at Scripture and how it informs us and how it, sh- how, how it, it helps us understand what we're sure. experiencing, as opposed to, which I have heard, Taking the church back and trying to place it in a, in a reality that is no longer there, you know, yeah, um, yeah. whatever that reality was, it a reality where maybe, not that this ever happened, but a reality of of the idea that a nuclear family was the perfect family, and, and it was a man and a woman and three children, and that... and, and, and That was
1: not the case in the New Testament era. Exactly, <laughs> but that was, you know,
0: maybe an ideal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but now... You know, we have so many single-parent families. Mm-hmm. We have families um, that maybe grandparents are raising children. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have just different visions. We have yep. families where no one can All different to. sizes so and shapes and colors right, of families. Right, right, yeah. instead of trying to force everyone back into mm-hmm. some space that no longer exists, right. seeing how Scripture informs us today. And that
1: works in the church in general, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. So then we, then we hit our conclusion Um Talk about that.
1: Yeah. So then finally Jesus concludes by saying that the scope of what is mine that the Spirit will declare to them. That's what he said just previously. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Well, the scope of that includes all that the Father has. Because he says, all that the Father has is mine as well. So not only will the Spirit reveal to them all that Jesus still has to teach them, but also all that the Father has. And I think in the context of John's gospel, I would say that refers to the fullness of all that God wants them to say to the Mm -hmm. world, just as Jesus said what the Father told him to say, and to fulfill the works that God intended for them to do, just as Jesus did what the Father told Mm -hmm. him to do and so in the farewell discourse then the point of the spirit's work of leading the disciples into all truth is to equip and empower them for their work of testifying to jesus to the new life they had through him and to guide them in carrying out the work jesus himself had begun which was mm-hmm. the work of bringing the world into the embrace of love shared by the father son and holy spirit
0: wow and <laughs> so finally um reflecting on how this is Trinity.
1: Yeah. So again, I think here we have an implication of Trinity mm-hmm. that very likely led to the selection of this yep. passage for yep. reading yep. on Trinity Sunday. Absolutely. Father, Son, and Spirit are all united in the work they do, yet they each have different roles. The Father is the one who instructs the Son regarding what to say and what to do in John's Gospel. And one of the major themes in the farewell discourse is that Jesus has faithfully carried out the Father's will, both in his teaching ministry, and that he would carry it out in his glorification mm-hmm. by being lifted mm-hmm. up on the cross And the resurrection. Resurrection and at the ascension, since Jesus is departing to be with the Father, then He promises that the Father, that the Spirit, will come to teach them not only all that He had taught, but also would declare to them the Father's will. So again, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit yeah, yeah. working together. And and as we pointed out last year for Trinity Sunday, this this is characteristic of the way that the New Testament speaks in, in trinitarian terms, even though it doesn't use the actual word Trinity. Right now, again, you know it may be true that the language of trinity does not emerge until after the new testament we find it in the earliest new testament documents and this in a pattern similar to this of sort of an interweaving of the work of father son and holy spirit while at the same time affirming that god is one and Mm -hmm. again as i mentioned last year i think the key point to notice is that there is never any effort made to justify this language it is already from the beginning from the first documents of the new testament it is already an integral part of the christian faith
0: right exactly and it, I, I think I think it's ideas later that come in. Mm-hmm. I mean, where people start to start to question. Well, I, you know,
1: I see the work of the fathers. They're they're dealing, of course, with with various um, heresies, obviously. But but I mean, the whole the whole process is one of trying to understand better what is this interweaving of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right, while right. at the same, t- what does it mean to affirm the work right. of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, while at the same time affirming that God is one. Right.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And these become become things they have to deal with. And but it, it you're right. I think there's just this common. This is how God works, mm-hmm. and and so there really isn't a need to sit down and define it yeah. um, in the Scripture itself, and uh, and I think I, I'm hoping you can see. Gosh, this is really rich for Trinity Sunday. Yeah. Um, and even though it's only a few verses, which is what I first saw was, oh, this how am I gonna this is so little and yet look how much is here. And so sure. I think I think it'll be set. Well, when
1: we set it in the context of the farewell discourse as a whole, mm-hmm. I think it, it 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 comes to life a it little d- better. It really does. Yeah. Yes,
0: thank you. All right. All right, we'll be back. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.
1: Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to uh, let Christy talk to us about how the reformers dealt with this passage, and particularly about uh, the Athanasian Creed. Yeah. So we're going to pull out some history books here, and we're gonna we're yeah. gonna look at look at how that played a role in the Reformation era.
0: Sure. So knowing it was Trinity Sunday, I thought, well, let's talk about Trinity Sunday just a little bit. And um, as I got working into it, I realized that. Um, in order to celebrate the Trinity, uh, many of our brothers and sisters, the tradition is to pull out this Athanasian Creed, and which is one of the purest um, um, uh, definitions of Trinity that the church has put out. And yet, for those of us that are Presbyterian listening are going, I do not know this creed. This is not in our book. Um, and therefore, we... Don't read it on um, Trinity Sunday, but
1: I—I I, I was telling Christy, you know, I grew up in the Methodist Church, and um, you know, I've been to—I've been to Episcopalian churches. I don't think I've ever been in a worship service where we said the Athanasian Creed right, as right. an affirmation of faith.
0: Right. Um, I do think it's important to know you know, we have our creeds that we use in our Reformed tradition. There's many others written throughout the church. Some of them are, um, are are frankly not, not even in, in the correct order with, with our, with our theology. Um, and some are in, some are out, and, you know, we, we add some. Um, and this one, um, here's the good news. This one, probably could be in there there's nothing there's nothing doctrinally wrong with this it's yeah. but there are some reasons it's probably not we could talk about that in, in a little bit um but i think i think we need to go back um to the early church where the doctrine of trinity trinity is codified and and you know we just talked about it's trinity is not a word in the bible <laughs> right um so how does this then emerge is is one of the core um core pieces and in in its understanding and 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 really we're talking about that shift from 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 jesus from from the written word to then then how does this what does this mean what do we believe how Mm -hmm. how do we understand god and so this is how this happens and the church fathers as we know are largely in charge of this and um, I am not an expert in the church fathers. Alan knows much more about them than I do, but I, they are so important for our faith. And I think um, particularly people forget that the Reformers also looked at the ch- church fathers as central to to defining what we believe. Some people think that the Reformers jump over them back to some uh, primitive um, pre church <laughs> space and that's not true
1: well that's what the radical reform did right they just, mm-hmm. they, they wanted to jump over all of that and go back right. to the New Testament and read it just directly on their yes, own and exactly. of course that led to some of the problems that were in the radical reform
0: huge problems but right?
1: I, I, you know you mentioned this before and I, I love the fact that our reform tradition and some of the other magisterial reformers you know they wanted to read the New Testament through the lens of the early church fathers
0: mm-hmm, exactly so they are Reading the fathers, and then they they hit this point where the Roman Catholic Church starts to kind of go off, and or the medieval church is what our better terminology kind of go off, and kind of create doctrine that that really s- kind of steps us a- away from uh, what the church fathers had. And mm-hmm. I would probably put the date. I mean, a lot of this becomes. Official doctrine. We've talked about the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, and that's really the date that things really start to break away from even the vision that the fathers had. Mm -hmm. I think some of this had been practiced in the church before, but it really gets kind of taken to a a a new space, like the seven sacraments get and and and, uh, definitions of of marriage and some of these pieces that are become part of the Roman Catholic.
1: Well, and, it, and you know, and it seems to me that you know, talking about reading the New Testament through the lens of the early church fathers, we're talking about basically, you know, uh, um, uh, an articulation of faith right. that that you know uh, we could see in the Apostles' Creed or in the Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. and it essentially sur- surrounds who God is right. and how we know right. God exactly. in Trinity, exactly. Right, and and right. so you know th- then you know, that becomes an essential, exactly. I, I think it becomes an essential feature because it, I think it does sort of put a, a check on some of the excesses that you saw with the radical reform.
0: Exactly, exactly, um, exactly. One of the, one of the pieces here, you know, obviously we're talking about what we believe, but I also wanted to mention, it also reflects what we we, sh- we shouldn't believe, what incorrect doctrine is. And that's what is meant by heresy. And I think a lot of people hear this word heresy, and they think of people, they think of devil worship, and that's heresy. But they're really talking about incorrect doctrine. And these can be really, in our words, pretty simple things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but they, it's really important, and we've talked about this with the Reformation as a whole, but it's important what that people know what they believe that that we have this doctrine out there that we're not just kind of guessing and reading scripture um without any kind of direction based on
1: just this is what it means to me
0: exactly exactly (laughs) and the church fathers knew this this is the only way for our church to Mm -hmm. grow um
1: yeah you know when i think of heresy i guess i think more of of heresy hunters, you know, people, right, right. people hunting down ha. and trying to eradicate heresy. Absolutely.
0: And, and, and but, that happened. Yeah, And that happened. Um, and it was considered dangerous. Um, so,
1: well, and I think that's the thing we don't realize is, is that some of these ideas, you know, so, you know, we might not get up in arms about somebody who doesn't believe that Jesus was truly the son of God, or that he was truly Truly God and truly human, we might not get all up in arms in that, right. but in in the formative stages of the church, this was a foundational doctrine, and mm-hmm. this was something that was crucial right. to the ability of the church to to move forward and to and right. to to have some sense of coherence.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so going back to um, and and I think it's important thing, we know that. Average Joe's probably didn't understand the, the the fullness of this of this, and, it, and at least most um, uh, and most of these medieval folks probably believed a whole bunch of things that were kind of magical and church-wise. And it wasn't too big of a problem with the church as long as it did not form into some kind of a a group that challenged the authority of the church. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, the Hussites, the Bohemian Hussites that we've heard about with Jan Hus or or the Lollards in England, those are groups that were using heretical beliefs to actually divide themselves from the medieval church, and they got in trouble. Mm -hmm. So it did happen. And we really see the shift as i said this lateran council this 1215 is kind of a big date but as we hit towards the high middle ages um and the church really is defined its power as the kind of one institutional being that unites all of europe that's when we also see um more intense scrutiny on doctrinal beliefs. And Hmm. indeed, this is when the famed Inquisition is created to root out heresy. Now, you are all familiar with the Spanish Inquisition, its reputation for being particularly brutal. That's one piece of an Inquisition that was actually put out from the church for all of Christendom. So this Mm -hmm. isn't just the Spanish. The reason the Spanish Inquisition, though, is is so... um, well known is because in Spain you're dealing with, um, you're dealing with an area that has been taken over by the Muslims. Yes, so indeed. they begin this about. Again, this High Middle Ages, but starts a little earlier than that. This Reconquista of kicking the Muslims out. Well, a lot of those Muslims became Christian um, because it, it was it was beneficial to do sure. so. So it was, enabled
1: them to stay and live in peace. And exactly.
0: Yeah. So as the Muslims are being kicked out, there was this question: Well, are those folks, are those Moriscos, actually? Um, are they actually Christian? Or are they really still Muslim? And they just said they're Christian. And we want to make sure their doctrine is right. And then, of course, in the course of this, were many Jews who lived there as right, well, right. Um, the conversos. And are the conversos really Christian, or are they um,
1: still basically still Jewish? Basically yeah. Jewish. Yeah. So
0: that's where the Spanish Inquisition has if you will, more work to do. Whereas, is, as mm-hmm. is the rest of the continent, you are dealing with folks that have picked up on some of these other her- heresies um, that, uh, and uh, that you know, like on um, what the nature of Christ is. Not sure. so whether not enough they're 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 Christian or some other doctrine different So anyway, all of this is coming in in this age, but um, just important to know that heresy was dangerous. So the medieval church is able to handle this fairly well, but you can see why the Protestant reformation where all of a sudden you get a chance to, if you will, break away from Rome Mm -hmm. and therefore ideas are going running wild again. People, and we've talked about this. People are reading scripture for themselves. People are creating their own kind of doctrinal understanding and heresy gets out of control. Um, and well,
1: and it sort of becomes the priesthood of all believers run amok, but yep. it, it's it, it, the priesthood of all believers becomes the priesthood of the believer individual, single, oh, single, yeah. right? Yeah, well, to that, some extent. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I don't need anybody to tell me what the, what the Bible means. I can read. I it up can for I can read myself. it for
0: myself, right? And, and that's right. not
1: the priesthood of all believers. Exactly. The priesthood of all believers takes place in the community of faith. <laughs> exactly,
0: and the Reformation, like the early church. The biggest heresy that they found really revolved around the nature of Christ. Um, Now, I have to talk a little bit. There's several of these. We we do not have time to go into all the different ones, but the one that was the biggest threat was the one started by Arius, um, known as Arianism. And I think most people have probably heard of that this is not the arianism of, of nazi germany and i right. have students that have confused that over oh the yeah years. wow um, so just to make sure that sounds the same we're talking about we're talking about a heresy but uh led by a priest from alexandria named arius um, he uh, lived from 250 to 336 so I'll give you an idea of his dates um, but he argued that jesus was subordinate to god so, in other words, if Jesus is subordinate to God, not really equally part of the Godhead, and therefore it throws Trinity apart as well. So it, it lessens Jesus is really just. Um, um, a lesser god in in his kind of
1: you know, and I've always wondered whether uh, this was Arius's way to try to focus on monotheism. Yeah, you know, he wanted to emphasize the one God as opposed to yeah. the th- the three persons of the Trinity, as we would use as the language would be developed. Right, and um, you know, so in his mind, this was this was the only way to. This
0: was how to. Keep, yeah, hold
1: hold on to the idea of one God.
0: Absolutely, yeah. and and I've heard this. You know, I, I took I took a class with um, um, at some some graduate courses with with Muslim folks who who can't grasp mm-hmm. the Trinity, and in mm-hmm. their mind, this is polytheism. So mm-hmm. this is where Arius is coming from. Um, but nonetheless, it obviously causes some huge problems about about salvation, uh, um, um, and a huge problems for the our faith as a whole and and the nature of god so it really doesn't doesn't work but nonetheless it was it was one of the big ones and um it was ultimately dealt with um well it was dealt with at the council of nicaea right Mm -hmm. and so the nicene creed becomes one of our confessions
1: of Um, one substance with the father right exactly
0: and then that's clarified Mm -hmm. at chalcedon however it doesn't end the whole controversy um and That's something
1: I never knew from my church history course. I didn't realize that Arianism persisted after the oh, Nicae, yes. Nicene um, the Council of Nicaea. Yeah,
0: because what happens is there's all these people that you know aren't Christian that the church is sending out, right? Were sent out to spread the news. Well, a lot of them are Christianized as Arians. Right? Well, the
1: missionaries themselves were, were holding to the views exactly. of Arius, Exactly.
0: Right? And so a lot of these were Germanic tribes. Now, the place where this is going to differ, my assessment, than what you might read in your maybe your church history book is because I'm also trained as a secular historian. You have to remember that the Germans... Um, weren't conquered by Rome. Yeah, they're separate, and you know, there's a whole line of fortifications along the western edge of Germany that are Roman fortifications because they never they're never able to conquer that area. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole idea of there those folks who came under Rome, and of course, our Romance languages all breakdowns of Latin, right? French and, mm-hmm. um, and Provence, and all those different ones are all are are all Latin, where where right. Rome where had had been, and then there's the Germanic languages, right? right? So you you see that, and so Arianism became kind of a battle cry for Germans as being separate and different. Hmm. Um, Interesting, and yeah. and so they were hanging on to this view of Arius, and of course this
1: was what distinguished them from the Roman Empire and ex- their and their form of of faith.
0: And exactly, and so it became a real panic of the Church of We need to solidify. Um, really, w- what Trinity is and why it's important, and that's when we get. And this is all happening really during the 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 late third century and the fourth century before the fall of Rome. And so we get in here this Athanasian Creed. Now, this is written after Athanasius lived, um, and there's this is fairly um, this is fairly. Um, this was determined in about the 1960s that scholars went back and determined that this absolutely wasn't uh, Athanasius but that wrote this um mm-hmm. but but there's a lot of suggest- it had been kind of accepted it was Athanasius right. and it does seem to um um and this I'm not an expert on this but to to um Reflect the doctrine that he had regarding mm-hmm, Trinity, mm-hmm. but indeed it wasn't. But this this comes in as one of the creeds that's going to be used by the church to defend Trinity and defend it against Arianism. Sure,
1: remind us again the reasons why why scholars don't believe sure. that it was written by Athanasius.
0: Well, it came in lat in Latin, and Athanasius was writing in Greek. Right, was one that's of a the big, one, I think. big arguments. Yeah. It, it never appeared in any. Any other documents until about a hundred years later, right? Um, and people weren't weren't using it; it hadn't become part of it.
1: Well, just the um, fact that, yeah. it, that, that it that it that it post dates Athanasius by so much, uh, absolutely, you know, that's, that's yeah. A th- issue. So
0: those were the main issues for mm-hmm. it. But again, when you get to the Reformation period you are getting access. I think we've talked about this too. Ancient documents for the first time you're getting, you know, really it's the first time that our reformers are really able to study Augustine, right? mm-hmm. And then study church fathers. They didn't have these documents before mm-hmm. they had pieces of them. Um, there's question mark to how much the Reformers had the right. writings of Athanasius. And um, there's a, a scholar, a, a newer scholar out there, Aza Gudrian, who argues that it's likely Calvin had very little um, um, contact with Athanasius' documents. Mm. Um, probably heard of him, obviously heard of the Creed, which was kind of been accepted during the time period, but, but probably was not familiar with his works. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't reference them. In fact, they found... Um, um, one reformer that clearly had worked through through them, but he was he postdated Calvin. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Um, I think I think those were those were documents he didn't have. Sure. And we kind of assume in today's world that they had everything at their fingertips, but they they did not. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, this had become part of the the space there, and this this creed, however, is it um. As a, um Anyway, this creed is considered to be one of the um, clearest um, defining documents of the Trinity. Um, And I copied it off. um, It's not in our um, book of confessions. Um, Parts of it are fine, but but there's a couple reasons that it may not be in here. Um, One is Calvin got the reputation of not... um, of being anti this creed. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually this was written in, in 1908. This person had mistranslated Calvin's work. And Calvin, instead of affirming this, which he actually did as being one of the, one of the, fundamental creeds of the church he misread calvin he mistranslated it saying calvin would never approve this and it was left out ever since which is really interesting because
1: somebody mistranslated calvin Uh in the early in the early 20th century yeah 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 yeah.
0: Hmm. and so it's kind of now only made its way that that was an incorrect assessment Hmm. and this, our Scots confection actually references this. And oh, yeah. That, the Sc- or, excuse me, the second Helvetic, which is in our book of confessions. So mm-hmm. how interesting yeah. that this is. Um, and it's it's fine. I think another reason, though, even even if Calvin uh, uh, affirmed it, he, he didn't tend to like things that had what you don't believe mm-hmm. and but really what you do believe and this has don't believes in. Well, it. and it, it's, mm-hmm.
1: it, it's 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 kind of limiting in some ways in the sense of, you know, if you if you don't believe this then you cannot be you cannot be saved. <laughs> right, right. Exactly.
0: So, I'm going to actually have Alan read this with me. I'm going to start the first line and then we'll just switch the lines here okay, so we'll cool. get a little bit of variation in and voice. Okay. So, beginning, whoever wants to be saved should Above all, cling to the Catholic faith.
1: Whoever does not guard it whole and inviolable will doubtless perish eternally.
0: Now, this is the Catholic faith. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being.
1: For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another.
0: But the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty.
1: What the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit.
0: Uncreated, is the Father, uncreated is the Son, uncreated is the Spirit.
1: The Father is infinite, the Son is infinite, the Holy Spirit is infinite.
0: Eternal is the Father, eternal is the Son, eternal is the Spirit, and yet there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal, as there are not three uncreated and unlimited beings, but one who is uncreated and unlimited."
1: Almighty is the Father. Almighty is the Son, almighty is the Spirit, and yet there are not three almighty beings, but one who is almighty.
0: Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God.
1: Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord.
0: As Christian truth compels us to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords.
1: The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son was neither made nor created, but was alone begotten of the Father. The Spirit was neither made nor created, but is proceeding from the Father and the Son.
0: Thus, there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three spirits.
1: And in this Trinity, no one is before or after, greater or less than the other, but all three persons are in themselves, co-eternal and co-equal. And so we must worship the Trinity in unity and the one God in three persons.
0: Whoever wants to be saved should think thus about the Trinity.
1: It is necessary for eternal salvation that one also faithfully believe that our Lord Jesus Christ became flesh.
0: For this is the true faith that we believe and confess, that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man.
1: He is God, begotten before all worlds from the being of the Father. And he is man, born in the world from the being of his mother, existing fully as God and fully as man with a rational soul and a human body, equal to the Father in divinity, subordinate to the Father in humanity.
0: Although he is God and man, he is not divided, but is one Christ.
1: He is united because God has taken humanity into himself. He does not transform deity into humanity.
0: He is completely one in the unity of his person, without confusing his natures.
1: For as the rational soul and body are one person, so the one Christ is God and man.
0: He suffered death for our salvation. He descended into hell and rose again from the dead.
1: He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father.
0: He will come again to judge the living and the dead.
1: At his coming, all people shall rise bodily to give an account of their own deeds.
0: Those who have done good will enter eternal life. Those who have done evil will enter eternal fire.
1: This is the Catholic faith.
0: One cannot be saved without believing this firmly and faithfully.
1: Wow. (laughs) So
0: there's lots of pieces on there. I think um, one thing that I did read was some people felt that this was maybe a song, And you could hear that potentially Mm -hmm. in it, um, that it wasn't necessarily crafted as a creed. I don't, they don't really know. And Mm -hmm. as I said, they don't really know who wrote it, Mm -hmm. um, only that they think it was probably written sometime in in the sixth century.
1: Well, and just reading it, I mean, there's some things in here that are, you know, really quite eloquent articulations of what we understand to be trinity mm-hmm. there's some other things though that are <laughs> you know you know if you believe this then you're good if you don't believe this then right. you know you're damned and this is right. the catholic faith and and you know that kind of stuff we might we might have some raised eyebrows if something like this were in the book I of think confessions we, i think
0: we would <laughs> we would and yeah yeah and uh it certainly it certainly wasn't one that um <laughs> that was emphasized as much mm-hmm. right um Although, as I said, they did affirm it. And important for us, you all to know, it's, it is used in a Lutheran tradition. It's in the Book of Concord, 1580. Mm-hmm. So it, it does make its way there. It um, is used by the Roman Catholic Church. It is right. used by the Episcopal Church and even somewhat in the Methodist Church. All those that stem off the Church of England um, have this as uh, one of the confessions. Mm-hmm. So in addition to the Apostles in the Nicene Creed. It just isn't in our Reformed tradition, or at least in our Presbyterian tradition, but um, it, it, it certainly wasn't rejected as its reputation has that calvin right. affirmed it
1: yeah the the website uh, that we got this from was the revised what well, was, was was from the reformed church of america and they under their website where they have what they believe in their creeds mm. and they they, they, include, they include this it. as one of their creeds right. for their for their faith so there are reformed uh bodies that do use this right you know? right
0: well and i think it it could be brought back in, but I don't think it probably needs to be brought back in. Right? Yeah. It it kind of goes backwards instead of moving forward. Well, it seems
1: to me that the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed do a pretty good it job kind of, of defining it. Trinity for us.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's it's an interesting space, um, interesting space to be in. Um, I think um, you know just to kind of to to finish this out. Um, um, the reformation as a whole is a time when that doctrine of Trinity does come under attack. Um, and I think part of this is because of the scripture again, Trinity doesn't appear and you've got Mm -hmm. all those peers. We've talked about Servetus before, before. He's actually put to death for his anti-Trinitarianism and, and many of the radicals are there. Um, but, um, the reformers are going to go to great lengths to affirm the doctrine of Trinity. And, um, to affirm what they believe and it becomes really caught up in what's known as the confessional churches and those churches are um and so these are churches that recognize the ancient confessions of the church apostles nicene and athanasian actually Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and this are the the roman catholics and the lutherans um by 1555 and remember this Calvin's a little bit later; it's a generation later, mm-hmm. so we don't see that happen until after the Thirty Years' War, um, when they're also going to recognize the Reformed tradition. Um, in fifteen fifty five, regio, um, religio—that's whose region, whose religion. So that so the, the
1: the prince of whatever principality determined the religion exactly, of, that, of that exactly, exactly. Yeah.
0: And for a while, it was just the two, but it can't be all of these. Radical groups I keep telling you about, they Mm -hmm. do not recognize the confessions. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they are out of the system. And then eventually the Reformed tradition is going to be pulled back into this um, as well, recognizing the confessions. Well, and that period. addresses
1: you know a common misunderstanding that the Protestant Church in Germany is Lutheran. Well, the reality is there are some regions where it is more Lutheran, and there are some regions where it is more Reformed. Absolutely. And so you know, uh, people think of German Protestants as being all Lutheran. Well, my favorite Reformed theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, was right, a German right, Protestant absolutely. who was in the Reformed tradition, absolutely. not in the in the Lutheran tradition. Right. The, yeah. the
0: Western Palatinate. It was particularly formed um mm-hmm. as one of the main areas mm-hmm. and um, of course obviously almost uh, many of the swiss cantons are reformed mm-hmm. as well that's right. obviously where calvin was functioning but there's right. a huge reform presence in france with the huguenot population right. that people kind of forget about um and yet very important because the french wars of religion are some of the most brutal mm-hmm. um and really this the 30 years war and why someday we'll talk about it more. It's considered the last war of religion. Mm. And by the time you hit 1648, we have switched from wars of religion to wars of dynasty alone. It becomes a political, and that we really pushes us into what we consider the modern era as opposed to the early modern era. Mm -hmm. And at 1648 and forward, we'll start to see more and more religious toleration, Mm. um, which is really interesting as well. But... We also see ding, ding, ding with modern world, the resurgence of anti-Trinitarianism, right. particularly in England. And we'll get the break off with the Unitarians. Right. Um, and so Trinity Sunday becomes kind of a big deal yep. because it reminds us this the centrality of the Trinity to um, the unity of the church. Sure. So I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. Thanks, <laughs> okay, Thanks.
1: Hi, folks, we're back, and we're going to talk about some uh, contemporary uh, um, application today uh, in this segment. And so, Christy, you know, you and I both know that there are plenty of churches out there that probably don't even say anything about Trinity Sunday. And maybe the most they do is just have a note in their bulletin, and there's nothing much really else there. Um, why is it important for us to focus on Trinity on Trinity Sunday? Why is that a big deal? Yeah,
0: that, you know that's a good question because because I think um, I think you can have a really imbalanced church when you have an imbalanced vision of God, and I sure. think that Trinity is really really important for how God works. Um, because God without Jesus, for example, you, we don't really know God's who God is. I mean we only have, as Calvin would say, glimpses of mm-hmm. God in mm-hmm. nature. You know, but if you just have Jesus, we have a lot of Jesus churches out there, then you you forget about God um, being sovereign. Mm-hmm. You know, it just becomes a relationship with me and Jesus and my right, pal.
1: Right. Um, and then Buddy we ha- Jesus.
0: Yeah. Or then we have, you know, Holy Spirit churches where we kind of forget about God and God working um, and and revealing Himself through Jesus and and Scripture, and then we we can do whatever we want. Well, yeah, <laughs> and,
1: and even even taking Scripture in, in places where it's not meant to go mm-hmm. because the Spirit told me this. Told, right? The
0: Spirit told me this. So you really need to have um, worship that looks at Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and if nothing else, Trinity Sunday kind of grounds us, for reminding us, hey. Make sure you get rooted in who you are, and this was a big deal in the recent seminary. Um, was to worship Trinity, mm-hmm. and and so while I, I, I I'm not as good as some people are, I do try to you know I, the prayer I did was it was a very trinitarian prayer last week, or making sure I'm talking about, and and I think you can use different. Different names: Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or you know, you could even um, you could parent um, uh, parent-child type. Well, of a lot language. of people use
1: the create, creator, redeemer, redeemer, sustainer, and I use that language. a lot too, yeah. which
0: I like. Mm-hmm. So I think you can use the different language, but just reminding of all the aspects of like the Godhead instead mm-hmm. of just kind of overemphasizing one.
1: Sure. So, so one way to do that then is to be intentional about using Trinitarian language. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah.
1: You know, um, I find it interesting that you know we talk about the various eras, and you talk about the early modern era of the Reformation, and then the modern era per se. And when I think about the modern era, I think about Friedrich Schleiermacher, who, yep. in his in his Christian faith, his systematic theology, made the Trinity an appendix. To yes, Christian theology. Yes. yes.
0: <laughs>
1: and, and in other words, you know, in, in a not so subtle way saying that this really isn't a part of Christian faith.
0: Right, right.
1: And, and yet, you know, uh, to me in the New Testament, um, it, even though the word Trinity doesn't show up. Um, the language of Trinity is so central to the faith and the message of the gospel. I mean, mm-hmm. the, significance of, the significance of Trinity, as you mentioned, is that Jesus truly shows us what God is like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more than that, the significance of Trinity is that in Jesus, God takes the brokenness of this world into God's self. And furthermore, uh, through the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. God surrounds and sustains us with God's loving presence Constantly working to make all things new, and to me, I I don't know how you have good news. I don't know how you have the the good news of the gospel without Trinity, because all of this is at the heart of what we say is our message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is the that is the heart of the Christian message. Well,
0: and I think when we've seen the experiments of kind of taking Trinity out, truly, Mm -hmm. we we end up with a really weakened church, and I think we can argue that happened to the modern church. I mean, um. And it really kind of took our, our neo-Orthodox um, um, theologians to kind of pull us back around and say, hey, what are you doing? Right. When you do that, you have just destroyed the church. And, of course, yeah. then you get movements. And I don't, you know, our, our brothers and sisters that are Unitarian. But that really takes us away from from how the church works. We're talking about a whole different kind of theology there.
1: Right. And, and well, I mean, in the Unitarian Church, you know, a minister can be Christian, a minister can yeah, be Buddhist, Exactly. a minister can be agnostic, a minister can be an atheist, right, you know, you right. can, I mean, and that's what happens when you, when you take, take this kind of out is that, you know, um, a, a Unitarian minister may be Christian, or right. may not be Christian, right, and, right. and it's really not about the Christian faith right, at all, right. it's about just, kind of spirituality it's a more of a
0: spirituality and a, a community which is great right and right. And, and social justice issues and, mm-hmm. and these things are good mm-hmm. these things are good but it really takes you outside of of salvation and
1: outside well, it takes of, you outside of christianity yeah takes yeah. us out of,
0: of of our tradition and um i think people forget that and i hear that a lot but um i i i think i think the modernist tradition i mean people were, were questioning they had wanted to have this kind of scientific
1: mm-hmm.
0: kind of proof for things and right. you know, how can this right. how can this be and it doesn't make sense and so
1: yeah in the german it was wissenschaft yeah it was it was it was scientific research you exactly. know somehow was, into theology and into faith right yeah.
0: right and um you know i am um, I did uh, some work with on T.F. Torrance, who's one of the modern Reformed—he's um, since passed, but just recently—theologians um, the, who's actually done a remarkable job of tying together theology and science and, mm-hmm. and really why these aren't incompatible at all. Mm-hmm. Brilliant work um, um, by— by Torrance on there. And so uh, it, Ma- Alistair McGrath does a lot of work with Torrance. And mm-hmm. then um, my former professor, Elma Collier, kind of the two big guys in, Tor- in Torrance studies. But mm-hmm. I think his um, theology and science... Um, so this, this is a wiki description, but Torrance made sing, singular contributions to the dialogue between science and theology. Um, and his contributions in this area led Alistair McGrath to observe that many of the, the theologians he studied did not seem bothered by the fact that they had no firsthand knowledge of the method and norms of natural science, but wrote about science nonetheless. It, but, for, but it was different with Torrance. Torrance's writings were quite simply a landmark significance. Octum, uh, Mark Octmeyer describes Torrance's work in this area as magisterial and highly original. Um, so, anyway, Torrance, by the way, um, studied under Karl Barth and actually did um, actually did English translation of of some of Barth's works. Um, um, so you can see you can see some of Barth's ideas that come through, but then he spends this.
1: Okay. yeah it looks like he was a oh, co-editor with GW Bromley of, of a lot of the trans- English translations yeah. of Bard's dogmatics
0: so uh, reality and scientific theology is one of his books um, but he does a, a lot of things there where he's looking very broadly at um, this kind of interaction of, of kind of, of of knowledge as being guided by God and and furthered by God um, and and um, and, and some of the the attempts of, of, of scientific proof um, that, that are within the framework of God's creation instead of being some kind of separate discussion. So he sees these as all part of the same discussion of part of God's greater glory.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, and of course, the, the book that I think of is his book on the incarnation, the person and life of Christ, you know, and obviously... Incarnation is central to Trinitarian mm-hmm. work, but anybody who anybody who translated, helped translate Karl Barth's dogmatics into from German into English. I mean, Bart is 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 incredibly yeah. Trinitarian, you know, in his theology. Yeah, absolutely, obviously absolutely, that would have influenced him. A absolutely, great
0: deal. and of course, Torrance, Torrance obviously, is a student of Bart. Is very was very much involved. In fact, that Trinitarian piece is essential then for this of, of God's who God is and God's. You know this ontological trinity is being central then to how God operates then through um, scientific um, inquiry. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, and and you and I we understand language of essential ontological trinity versus um, versus uh, economic trinity. Right. You know, God as God is in God's self, and God is in as as God reveals God's self. Um, obviously that's not something that's going to communicate with people in the pews, no. but no. <laughs> how, how do we, how do, how do we try to connect with our people on the importance of Trinity? How do, how do you think, what are some ideas do you have? You about know,
0: that? yeah, I, I actually had a, a pastor friend uh, who used this, that simple language, but God above God who comes down and God who is with us and it's kind of mm. simplistic but it it was really helpful for my youngsters to wow. think about
1: God above God who comes down and God who is with yeah. us yeah mm. yeah interesting.
0: God who reveals, God who comes down to us, God who, is, who comes down to us, and then God that is with us. And mm-hmm. when my young people heard that and started to develop their own faith statements with these Trinitarian statements, they they identified with that those images. Sure. So sure. A That's little simplistic, but I think helpful. Right. It made them able to... To grasp Jesus as friend and teacher and mentor, but yet also to grasp the idea of the the spirit and and spirit moving with them. I mean, Mm -hmm. it did did work (laughs) pretty well for for
1: my part i've kind of focused on that functional um a functional Mm -hmm. understanding of trinity you know again as i mentioned before
0: well it's not so
1: much that it's it's just from my standpoint as a biblical theologian Mm -hmm. you know that that um uh, trinity reminds us that jesus truly shows us who god is and Mm -hmm. you know i think that's that's true i think that's important right that Mm -hmm. that um you know, I think a lot of us, a lot of people take for granted that Jesus truly shows us who God is, but there are a lot of people out there who will question that, especially when you get into some of the some of the questions about Jesus' person and is Jesus fully human and fully divine, um, you know, th- then it gets all kind of muddled up, but I think when you bring it, and again, it might be kind of a simplistic statement, but you know, that yeah, Jesus truly does show us who God is like Mm -hmm. and that's important I think for for us to be able to have a confidence that that God is a loving God God is an embracing God God is not an angry God who is who is you know gleefully destroying sinners uh, right 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 Uh, I think also beyond that you know that that and this this is something I think I I got from from my favorite Reformed theologian Jürgen Moltmann and his work on Trinity mm-hmm. is that you know w- w- when you see Jesus on the cross you see God taking the sin of the world right. into God's self and so you know that, again that's that's a reassuring thing that you know it's not that there's this this holy God and this loving Jesus you know and and mm-hmm. somehow we're caught in between but rather it is that. Uh, what we see Jesus doing, we see God doing, and God is the one who takes our brokenness upon mm-hmm. upon Himself in order to redeem it and and to redeem us. Mm-hmm. But then again, you know, the, the God is with us. You know right, that, that right, whole right, thing right. about the Spirit is that God is constantly surrounding us right, and sustaining right. us with His loving presence. Right, and that's something that we, even though we don't feel, right, it's a part of our faith.
0: It, it, it is a part of our faith, and. I think it is a part of our faith, and I do think that in all these cases, you know, as, as human beings, we have we're given this freedom to kind of, kind of say, I'm going to not pay any attention to God's presence. But I think if we live in the God's presence, if we listen for it, oh wow, it's pretty loud in, in my <laughs> space. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, and I think other people feel the same way. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to to try to help people walk into it with. And I think your non-believers tend to, they're like, well, I don't believe any of that. So, but they don't ever listen because they don't ever, they don't ever take that leap of faith. Mm. I mean, that's the thing that, that piece of faith in here that, um, so necessary mm-hmm.
1: yeah and yet it's a it's a faith that has a certain shape to it yeah and that's something that that you know it's it's more than just me and my buddy Jesus
0: right <laughs> you know
1: because Jesus is not just buddy Jesus Jesus is the Incarnate son of the Father who right. gave his life on the cross and who rose again from the dead and ascended into the right, right hand of right. God from which he reigns you know right and and so you know the, again I think Trinitarian theology helps helps us Avoid going into that buddy Jesus kind of space, right. and keeps us in the space of I biblical agree. biblical Christianity. Yeah, I yeah. think
0: so. I think so too. I mean, it's it's it really is, and and this is why they kept emphasizing. I think it was a Tom Long book um, in particular. I'm thinking of, but worshiping Trinity that um, that it's only through Trinity that we fully understand who God is, and mm-hmm. and, and, and until when we when we are worshiping other ways we are neglecting some part of our faith and part of our, our humanity too. Sure.
1: Sure. And it is a detriment to us to ignore it. Yeah. 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 All right. Thanks Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us.
0: It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ.
1: We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.